Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. Most of us will be vacationing sometime and somewhere this summer, and a common experience that uh, you may have in, in that vacation, as it seems like we always do when we take a vacation, is speeding by some breathtaking view or some historical marker and you know I've got my face fixed to get to the destination and yet my family starts chanting let's go back let's go back and for a man that can be frustrating because you know we get kind of focused and we're trying to set a land speed record to get us to our destination but they're trying to actually enjoy the thing can't understand that but they do shout those words and uh, occasionally we'll go back and take a second look at a special place or a special historical site And that's kind of how I feel about the passage that we're looking back. If you've already picked up your outline, you notice it says part two, and it has the same title as three weeks ago. And yes, we are going to take a look back. Uh, We've already plowed ahead into Ephesians 4, and we're well on our way in that particular chapter. But, uh, you know, the events and the statements and the, uh, the truth that's in chapter three is so significant and so important to understanding the overall tenor of this letter that I think it's important that we go back and take a second look at it, and that's what we're going to be doing this morning. And if you have not already done so, maybe maybe it would be appropriate if you like to mark in your Bible, and I love to mark in mine, that you just box off those verses 14 through 21 in chapter 3. And the reason I think it's so important that you box it and start And you might even write down the words next to that box. This is the key to the book of Ephesians. Because this little section that is so easy to pass by is in fact the key to this book. All the potential that Christ has made available to us that we've talked about in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then all the particulars that he'll go on, Paul will, will go on and tell us about in chapters 4, 5, and 6 hinge on this prayer being answered in your life and in mine. See, this is a prayer that I call a prayer for real Christianity. Not pseudo-Christianity, not religion, not going through the motions, not looking good on Sunday. This is the prayer for real Christianity. And I think Paul has in his heart these deep feelings that unless this prayer is answered, then all the things that follow won't be real. They'll be pseudo, and God save us from any more pseudos in our world, especially in the church. So he's praying that these people can move to a place where they're empowered from the inside out. Really, that's the kind of Christian he's looking for here. Not the outside-in Christian, but the inside-out Christian, the one who's empowered from within, the one who's moved from within, the one who, who has a lot of want to in his life. Not rules, not regulations, just want to rather than the the person who's kind of outwardly constrained by his religion and gives kind of a token attendance and feels that Christianity is a lot of have-tos. And he's not really sure he wants to do those things. That's the difference. And it all turns on this prayer from the potentials, you know, blessed with every spiritual blessing, that's a potential. Sealed with the Holy Spirit, that's great, but that's a potential. Made alive in Christ, given access to the throne of God, those are all potentials. 
to the particulars in 4, 5, and 6 where he starts talking, as Bill did last week, about making use of your gift, speaking the truth in love. See, that's a particular. That's an outworking of something, of being kind to one another. It's easy to say. It's not necessarily easy to do. Forgiving one another, being tender-hearted. Then he talks about, you know, how we're to be wise in our decision-making because the days in which we live are foolish. Being wise is, is a particular of outworking of this life within. Uh, living our marriage relationship in a certain particular style. And yes, the Bible teaches a specific particular style of marriage. Going on and, and engaging in spiritual warfare, that's chapter 6. And it talks about how to do that. Those are all particulars. But going from potentials to particulars centers on a prayer. To me, this is the prayer of the New Testament. There's some that are a little more uh, grand. There's some that are a little more sophisticated. But there are none that is more real than this prayer. This is the prayer for real Christianity. Is that what you have? Is that what you embrace this morning? Is that what you can say that you hold on to this morning is the real Christianity of the New Testament? Is that yours? Or is there something less than that? See, that's what makes this prayer so relevant because I think if the Apostle Paul lived in our day right now, the prayer that he would pray for this particular church in this particular generation would be this prayer for us. Because this is the difference between real and pseudo. Now, it's not a difficult prayer to understand, really. We'll walk through it. It's not necessarily a very sophisticated prayer. It's Like I said, it's pretty simple and straightforward. It's not a theologian's prayer with a lot of omniscience and omnipotence and holy others around it. Though Paul was a great theologian, probably the best theologian of all time, it's pretty much like a child's prayer. It, it, it's just passionate. It's loving. It's, it's straightforward. It doesn't have much pretension to it. And that's what I like about children's prayers. If you've been at a table with a child and asked them to pray, some of the things that come out of their mouth are just so uh, simple, so straightforward. Uh, recently, the, the 25th edition of Children's Letters to God came out that kind of illustrate this. And I want to read you some of the letters, the prayers that children write to God. Jane writes, Dear God, in Sunday school they told us what you do. Who does it when you're on vacation? a good question. Anita writes, Dear God, is it true my father won't go to heaven if he uses his bowling words in the house? <laughs> Donnie says, Dear God, is Reverend Coe a friend of yours or do you just know him through business? <laughs> Larry says, Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. <laughs> It works for me and my brother. <laughs> Eugene says, Dear God, I didn't think orange went with purple until I saw the sunset you made on Tuesday. It was cool. That's good, isn't it? And then finally Donna says, Dear God, we read that Thomas Edison made light, but in Sunday school they said you did. So I bet he stole your idea. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, those are, those are kind of straightforward and simple, and this is kind of straightforward and simple, though on an adult level, 
but it is just as transparent. It reveals this heart of an apostle who really has a passion that these people live the authentic Christian life. And that's why in verse 14, it starts out with Paul on his knees. That's why he begins saying that I bow my knee before the Father. If you were here with us three weeks ago, I mentioned that for Paul as an apostle or for a Christian or Jew in this day to get on his knees, it was a little bit unique. Uh, praying on your knees was not the normal thing to do back then. They did it, but they only did it when there was a point of deep distress or intense concern or life and death issue at stake. Fact is, you can go through the New Testament and just look for times where people get on their knees and you'll find them in those particular situations. And Jesus prayed a lot. And I went through and looked at some of his prayers, but it really doesn't mention his posture until you get to the Garden of Gethsemane. When you get to the Garden, Jesus gets on his knees because he knows what's going to take place, and it's an, an intense issue of death and life. And so he prays. When you move into the early church age, when they stoned Stephen, remember the first martyr of the church? When they stoned Stephen, as he was being stoned, he got on his knees and he prayed. When Peter went to the deathbed of Dorcas, he got on his knees to pray for healing. And then as you move into the later chapters of the book of Acts, the history book of the church, early church, there comes a place where Paul will see these very Ephesians that he's writing to here for the last time. He's about to go away to Jerusalem and then to Rome where he'll be martyred himself. But these are his friends. And, and he senses inside, and he knows inside, this is going to be the last time he's going to see his friends face to face. And in Acts 20, they embrace each other and they weep. And then together, they get on their knees and they pray. And I'm sure they pray some of these same prayers about authentic Christianity. So don't be flippant when you just read this statement, I bow my knee before the Father. To me, the Christian counterpart to this would be you and I being in such distress about our life or about issues that rather than get on our knees, we would go even farther and prostrate ourselves face down in the floor. That would show the intense concern of that moment, wouldn't it? And that's what's going on in this particular occasion as well. And so in this kneeling position, the seriousness of this moment is clearly evident because what lays in the balance, and I'm going to say this, probably over and over through the rest of the message. But what lays in the balance in this moment is either people who are excited about their relationship with God and who live that life from the inside out or people who go through religious motions and mechanical exercises, acknowledging God but never experiencing God, having to be entertained and pumped up from the outside in order to keep their lives just a little bit stable. Now, if you thought you tilted one side or the other when I read that, to which side would you lean this morning? See, that's why this question is so important. Because remember, when he starts this little prayer, he says, for this reason, do you remember that? For this reason, and we said the reason was that God was building the most unique temple on the face of the earth. It wasn't a temple with stones or bricks, but it was a temple made out of living human beings, each person, a living stone, building this great temple of grandeur that would ultimately give glory 
to God because as God worked on the inside, it would then radiate outside and they would move from the potentials to the particulars and people would go, wow. Now that's a life. And that's what he wants. But if it doesn't go from the inside to the outside, the stone loses its glow and the temple loses its grandeur. So he says, for this reason, I bow my knee before the Father. And I make a very serious prayer. And I ask you, God, to do four things for these people. And we're going to review the first one and look at the next three. The first thing is you remember he asked that they be strengthened in the inner man. Look there at verses 16 and 17. He makes these statements. He says, God, would you grant them according to the riches of your glory that they be strengthened with power through your spirit in the inner man so that Christ might dwell in their hearts through faith. Now, there are two little phrases that we talked about in particular last time. Notice, first of all, in verse 16, he says that he would grant. See, this prayer is not something that the Ephesians can do for themselves, just like you and I can't live the Christian life ourselves. There's one thing I learned early on, and I'm so glad I did, is that when you try to live out these truths yourself, it becomes a grind. It becomes sterile and, and, and mechanical, and, and it's, not, it's not any good. And you know what? It's not supposed to be. It can only be enlivened and energized and made exciting if it goes beyond that which you can do to something God is doing in you. And so the appeal here for these Ephesians as he intercedes for them, and I'm sure he did so on more than one occasion, is that God would grant to them grace and work in their spirit, the spirit being behind the mind, will, and emotion, something behind at the very core of their being would work in them such a capacity that they would sense the living God in them and would want to live for Him, but that God would grant that kind of capacity. And then if you notice, he goes on and he says in verse 17, so that, do you see that? That little word, so that means so that this would result. And the result is that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. We focus on that word dwell, katoikeo. We said that it meant to settle down, to be at peace with, to live with. It's a term of somebody moving in and living in your home. And see, for some of us, we're not there yet. Some of us are still deliberating where we want Christ to unpack. Because we're not sure what He's going to require of us. Maybe we're a little bit afraid of that. I know people who, from time to time, when they think of the will of God and, and the work of God, and when we talk in terms like this, they get fearful because they are afraid they're going to lose control. As long as you're struggling with the control factor, Christ has not unpacked. There, there has to come a place where you say, you be in control. Because as long as I'm in control, it stymies this whole process that this prayer is praying for. Or maybe some of us are at a place in our life where there's an issue and the will of God is very clear, but it's very difficult and hard. It's like climbing with your bare hands, you know, some sheer cliff. You're not sure you can do it. There's an easier way. It's real broad. You could drive a truck through it and, it, and that's how you feel like you can handle things. But the will of God says this, and you're not sure you want to do it, and you're debating with him, and you're fighting with him. See, when that's going on, he hasn't settled down. He's not dwelling in faith. He's not unpacked. The prayer here 
is that there would come a place where the fighting and the screaming and the kicking and the wrestling and the debating would be over for these people. Wondering, is all this really real? Still needing more proof before you can let him unpack. But there would come a place where finally you would say, I'm committed, Christ, live in me. And there's this deep inner sense that takes place, this capacity where from that point on, all of life begins with a very simple statement, though I don't know if you necessarily make it consciously, but it's unconscious in all the issues that you face in your life, and that is life begins at the headwaters with the statement, I trust you. See, that's how you feel about a mom or a dad, at least in a healthy situation. That's how you feel about your husband or your wife or a close friend. You trust them. You're not debating with them. You're not wondering if they're real. You just trust them. And he knows that before we can start talking about marriage and before we can start talking about parenting and spiritual warfare and making wise decisions and all the things that go with that, you've got to come to a place in the inner man where you trust him with your life. Whether it's a work issue or an interpersonal crisis or a temptation, a fear, some confession you need to make, some major decision or confusion, some personal problem, whatever it may be, you can't ever move to the will of God until you first trust God. Because to move there then just becomes more confusion. More, well, I don't know if I could do that, or I just don't think I have any strength left. I, I have people look at me at times and just go, well, I know that's right, but you just don't understand. I'm exhausted. So? So is the point being that you're exhausted, meaning you can't do it? Well, that's the point they're trying to make, but it doesn't sell in the kingdom. Because the kingdom says, no, no, there's strength you know not of, but we need to step back now from the will to the person. Do you trust him? That's the point. Do you trust him? And that's what he's praying for here. He's asking that whatever life might be, that God would work a work in you in such a way that you would live the rest of your life always starting, always with the starting point being, I trust you. I really do. So let's go. You know, the outside Christian lives totally different from that. The outside-in Christian. See, the inside-out Christian lives that way. The outside-in Christian, he's, he's not looking to God in a crisis. Oftentimes, he's blaming God for the crisis. Or he's telling God why he can't do his will in the crisis. See, that's the outside-in Christian. He's fighting with God over the right thing to do. He's, he's arguing with God, telling Him it's unreasonable what He's asking of Him, or why He should do that, or nobody else doing it that way, and why is He putting Him through this? That's the outside-in Christian. And some who are at even a lesser level than that, they're at the place where when life circumstances hit them, they don't even think to ask the question, what do you want me to do? Or do I trust you? They just do what they think's best. And then they glaze it over with some spiritual words to make it sound religious and look okay when it's really just the flesh doing what it wants. That is the fear that Paul has. That's what scares him as an apostle of the church more than anything else. That's what causes his knees and legs to go limp and causes him to fall down on them. 
because he's so deathly afraid that these people will become religious rather than Christian. And that's why he makes this prayer. But he knows if Christ strengthens these people in the inner man, if he settles down in their heart through faith, if they get that established, then we can go on to the next thing that he says. And that is that they move on and being rooted and grounded in love may be able then to comprehend, it says, with all the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, that is to know the love of Christ. What does all that mean? That's kind of a difficult phrase that he moves through, but he's, we know he's speaking about love and being rooted and grounded in it. And we know he's talking about seeing the grandeur of it, the height, the, the, the depth, the, the length, the breadth. But it's really the second stage of this prayer. Once being strengthened internally, that then you begin to comprehend something. That word comprehend, by the way, is a real colorful word. It's got two major kind of definitions to it that are helpful here. The first definition of the word comprehend is the word to struggle with in order to seize or apprehend. You ever see one of those movies where the guy's late for the train <laughs> and he's running alongside the train trying to grab onto it to seize it? That's kind of the picture I get when I read the word comprehend, that you might struggle or race towards or work with in order to grab onto it so you can experience it. The other word, uh, the other definition of this word comprehend is the word that may come to your mind automatically. That, that word is just to be enlightened, to be enlightened. But here's what I want you to know. It's being enlightened as a result of a struggle. See, here's what he's saying. Paul is, is very much aware of the fact that these people can keep Christianity in this, their heads. See, in the Greek world, the Greeks had separated life between the idea and the real. If any of you know anything about Greek thinking, they had this idea, this perfection, and then they had the real world, and they were always trying to you know, live in the idea, but it was all kind of theoretical. And that kind of thinking kind of swept over this particular world that these people are in. And Paul is writing these people and he wants them to move on from just the idea to the experience where the Greeks kept those as two separate things. They thought when they understood the idea, when they had mastered the idea, that the idea that's all that you could do. That's all there was. And you know what? In some ways, that, that kind of thinking still permeates the church. People come and they listen to a message on forgiveness or a message on being a giver or a message on, on, on walking with Christ or a message on marriage or a message on money or whatever it might be. And they think because they can hear it and it makes sense to them that somehow they've mastered it. His point here is he wants them to comprehend the love of God by taking those issues and going out and living with God in those issues and moving from I know, I can understand it, to I see and I've experienced it. And in experiencing it, I move from a God who I say is love to a God who I have experienced His love. Is, does that make sense to everybody? Am I being clear or am I just talking to myself at this point? <laughs> okay. I think that's so important. You see, that's what he's saying here. He's saying moving from a place that now that Christ has settled down in your heart through faith and 
you know, you can be rooted and grounded in love and you can experience all these dimensions, these incredible dimensions of how much God really loves you, not theoretically. Man, not theoretically. Experientially. If Christianity is not an experience, you don't know Christianity. You've missed it. It's a head trip. But it's practically meaningless. See, we want to go from I know to I see. That's why when Paul makes some of his other prayers, and you can look at them in Colossians and Philippians and other things, he makes this prayer to the Colossians when they became Christians, and he says, since the day you've become a Christian, I pray that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will. That's I know. And then he says, and with all spiritual wisdom and insight. That's I see. Because then when you go from I know to I see, you're entering into the love of God for you. Because He really does love you. But he doesn't love you as a distant parent. He loves you as a person who wants your life to be abundant and full and meaningful and free. That's exciting to me. See, that's moving from the excited Christian life, you know, and looking back on that which is just dead religion and saying, I never want to go back to that again. Well, God is honoring that, and uh, it's moving from a theoretical to a known, and, and, and I can look back over my life, and there's these points, they're like dots on my kind of life story where, where the love of Christ and the height of it and the depth of it has come crashing in, and I've just been amazed. remember a number of years ago, uh, really, it's when I graduated from college, that I made the decision not to be a banker, but to go into the ministry. And, and I'd just gotten married, and I had never been outside of Louisiana and Arkansas in my whole life. And we took off in our little Toyota with a new bride going to a new place to start a new adventure with no money. <laughs> and it was an adventure, let me tell you. We went through that first summer just barely eking by an existence, and I remember the fall was about to begin in that new semester. And, uh, uh, the tuition was going to be quite expensive, and I didn't have it. And uh, we had, I had taken a little job managing some apartments so we could have a place to live, free rent. And uh, what my wife desired, since she was trained as a school teacher, was to teach school. But all summer, she had been rebuffed in that pursuit. In fact, she had gone down to the Oregon Public Schools to look for a job, maybe in a little rural community, and was told, hey, we have a two-year waiting list. You don't even need to fill out an application. There's no way. And so she finally got a job. And if you know Sherrod, you know, my sweet little quiet wife, she got a job as a bill collector for a veterinarian. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, she would come home at night and she would cry and weep and say, this is not me. And it really wasn't. And uh, I knew enough about the scriptures to know that my role as a husband was to protect my wife. And she was undergoing an emotional beating. And uh, so here it was just a few weeks before school started, and I told her, by faith, stop working, quit. And we're just gonna pray for a teaching job. Now I was 23 at the time, and looking back, I may not have done that at this age, but I, but I, but I had been taught to believe in God. And I hope I never lose that. But I remember in our little apartment, we got down on our knees 
in that dining room and we prayed that she would get a teaching job. I didn't know how. I just prayed that prayer and I said, Lord, I don't know what to do, but I'm not going to let her go out and take this beating anymore. And if necessary, I won't go to school. I'll work. But I'm going to trust you for a job. And uh, about two days later, I was out watering the plants around the apartment and the owner's wife, who I'd never seen, came driving up and she introduced herself to me. And we got into a very pleasant conversation and and then she asked me what I was doing, and I told her I was going to seminary, and she was intrigued with that. She wasn't a Christian, but she said, she said, well, how are you going to make it through school and all that? You know, you're not earning any money here other than the place to stay. And I said, well, my wife had been working, but, you know, we'd like her to teach school, but, gosh, we've gone down with the Oregon Public Schools, and we can't even fill out an application. And she said, well, she said, maybe I can help you. And I said, really? She said, yeah. She said, you know, I'm the head of the PTA at Fabian School there in Portland. And, uh, and... I mean, maybe I can put in a good word. She said, what does your wife teach? And I said, well, she teaches special education, the mentally retarded. And she said, wow, that's interesting. She said, you know, the principal, Fabian, is the head of all special education in Portland. I said, really? <laughs> and I started getting my hopes up a little bit. She said, yeah, I'll talk to him. Well, she went down and talked to him, and that was like Wednesday and Monday my wife started teaching school in Portland. And let me tell you, I caught a glimpse, not of God theoretical. I caught a glimpse of how high he is, how deep he is, how wide, how broad. The love of God for me. See, that's what makes me just get chills. It was the love of God for me being expressed in real life. Not coming here and singing about God doing this and then going back and churning it out every day and I'm going to step on that guy and get up on him. I'm going to make it work. You know, I'll kill him if I have to. <laughs> and that's how we live. But there's another way to live. Not from the outside in. From the inside out. And over and over again through my life, sometimes not as dramatic as this, but sometimes just as important, the love of Christ for me. Now see, I can understand some of that mentally, but if you'll notice in the next thing, it goes beyond just mental. It goes kind of almost existential. Now, that's a big word, but let me tell you what it means here. If you'll look, notice in verse 19, it says, to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Do you see a contradiction there? Or do you see something that doesn't make sense? To know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Knowledge. That doesn't make sense in one sense, does it? To know the unknowable? That's what he's saying. To, to comprehend the incomprehensible? How can you do that? Well, the only way I know to do it, and that's what theologians used to call existential experience, is to know that emotionally. To feel it, even when I cannot describe it in, 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 a, in a mental way that I could box it up, you know, and put a bow around it. Uh, maybe the best way to get us in touch with it a little bit is to think about children and their mother. You know, you know, you see a child come running to mom and, uh, well, you know, Mason's first word in the morning at our house is, where's mama? You know, he's looking for mama, wants to go hug mama. And, and, and he senses this incredible emotion and love and commitment and sacrificial attitude from mom to him. But if I said, well, Mason, why don't you explain that to me? 
He'd go, huh? He couldn't say anything. He wouldn't know how to explain that to me. He wouldn't know how to categorize it and, and, and list it and, and put it in principle form. And yet, he does know it, doesn't he? He does know it. He knows the unknowable. He knows this sense of love. He's experienced it, even when he can't explain it. See, that's why at times, when, when we're sitting here in the auditorium and we're singing, and a line will come up on the screen here, and we're all singing lustily, and when that line hits, there's experiences that I remember about my relationship with God from the past, and suddenly these tears come to my eyes because I remember these feelings of how much God really does love me. I feel that. Now, I can't tell you, but it's just kind of like it goes beyond thought in that God really is in control. He is ordering things. Uh, there hasn't been any mistakes, per se, in my life. There's been sin, but no real mistakes because He even has the ability to knit those into something positive. And He's in control. And I, all of a sudden, I can feel that, and I go beyond myself, kind of like a, in a sunset. You just kind of go beyond yourself into the wonder of it all, but you can't explain it. Well, that's what He's talking about here, to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Do you know that? Is that the way God is to you? I mean, there have been times where you've been singing or whatever and you filled up with tears because you just know, you just know He loves you. Is that true of you? You know He's cared for you. In fact, you can look back with what you can comprehend and you can remember, like I just recited a moment ago, points along the way where His love was even identifiable and you could box it up. You know that? See, that's the kind of, of, of believer Paul wants to enter into chapters 4, 5, and 6. That's the kind of believer who's going to make a difference in the world. That's the kind of believer who's going to be a stone that's going like this, just glowing to the world. Not because there aren't scars, not because there aren't disappointments, not because there aren't heartaches, and not because they've done everything they wanted to do. But they know with, within all of that, God is at work and He does love them. In fact, as you could kind of summarize this whole passage from 14 through 19 this way, it starts with a work on the inside, doesn't it? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians says, in this Christ in you, strengthening the inner man to a place where at the start of all of life, every day is, I trust you. But then it goes from the inside to the outside with specific events. And it goes with not, I trust you, but I am trusting you. And I'm seeing results as I trust you. It's God on the outside. And he's being identified by the things he's doing and moving in my life. And I can see him answering prayers at times. And I can see him bringing things into my life. And I know why. I can comprehend that. It makes sense to me. I've seized it because I put him to the test and he's proven himself to be true. But then we go from God working on the outside back to the next level where the incomprehensible comes back on the inside where I know the unknowable. And I really understand how big God is. And he sums it all up with that last phrase in verse 19, that you might be filled up to all the fullness of God. So that summarizes it all. A full Christian. 
Okay, now let's go into four, five, and six. See, that's what he's saying. The full Christian. Because when we get in here and you get into a tough decision, because you trust God, you're going to look to His Word and look to His Spirit and you're going to see results and you'll be filled with even greater wonder of His love. When it gets tough in the marriage and you want to escape, no, you'll trust Him, <laughs> even in the pain. And you'll go ahead and seize and comprehend His will, even though it hurts, but you trust Him and then it works and you see the love of God again and He gets even bigger. That's what this passage is telling us. It's an incredible passage of a relationship with God, which is what Paul hungers for these Ephesians to achieve, not just grinding out rules and regulations. Far be it that he'd ever want that for anyone. Well, let's conclude. Look at verses 20 and 21 because he moves now from this petition to really a praise of possibilities. These possibilities hadn't come true yet, in one sense, he's looking forward to these, but he just makes these two statements. He says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundant, or excuse me, exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. You see, that's praise for the possibility of remarkable things. Not necessarily it's come about, but he's, he's praying that because if you walk with God the way I've just described, he will always take you beyond your capacity. Did you know that? He won't let you do what is just within your capacity. Because that would be small. He wants to do beyond that which you can think or ask. He wants it to be a big experience. And He's going to stretch you beyond your capacity. And sometimes... You know, to step into those, it's going to hurt. Remember, comprehend, seize, it's going to hurt. But he wants you to go way beyond yourself. Because if you live only within yourself, what good is that? That's humanism. We're talking about Christianity. To go beyond what we could ask or think. And notice, it's according to the power, and that brings us full circle, to the power that works within us. Where? In that inner man. Now, the, look at the little words, exceeding abundantly. You know, in Greek, that's just one word. And it can be translated this way, extraordinary. You see, he says, to be able to do extraordinary. Another way of saying it is something not encountered ordinarily. Gosh, if I just go through my life and it's just cause and effect, cause and effect, that's a naturalistic life. He's talking about something extraordinary. In Bible study methods, uh, for some of you who've been through Bible study methods, when you come across a word like that, one of the best ways to get a hold of that word is to uh, imagine something that relates to it. Uh, some of you men who've been in the men's fraternity, if you'll remember, we were looking at Ephesians passage, I mean, a Hebrews passage that says, you know, that we need to pay attention to the word lest we drift away from it. And I gave that illustration that day about, you know, drifting away, kind of imagining what drifting away would feel like. And we used the illustration of being at the beach when you're in the water. And the undertow starts pulling, you're not looking back at your reference point, and all of a sudden you look up and you're hundreds of yards down the beach, and all of a sudden you can feel that being pulled away subtly, silently. You know, when I came upon the word exceeding abundantly, and I said, what's something that can really help me get in touch? Just with my imagination about what that word means. You know what came to my mind? Fellowship Bible Church. Really. Fellowship Bible Church, it did. 
I start thinking back over the years and I start thinking about, you know, because this book says so much about unity. And I start thinking, you know, for 13 years, we've done, we've done something, not in ourselves, but in Him who is in us, that sometimes people look at and they go, I don't, I don't believe that. I mean, I had one guy tell me, I don't believe it. And that is, for 13 years, we've had a group of men, not always the same group of men because it's changed over the years, but for 13 years, we've had a group of men lead this church in which every decision we have made about directing this church, every man had to agree to. Every man had to agree to it. All these different personalities and different backgrounds, but when an issue came up, we debated it and talked about it from our different sides and sought the Lord's help, we came to a conclusion where we said, we're all there. 13 years we've done that. And I told one guy that in another church. He said, I don't believe you. He did. He said, I just can't believe that. We can't agree on anything. And then I started thinking about just numbers. I remember when I got here in the church in 1980 and you know we had three or 400 people and, and, and everybody was already with their mouths open because the original idea for this church, what we could think and ask for, was maybe two or 300 people. And we thought, gosh, in 20 years, there's 300 people here. Man, what a church. And I've been through several church, you know, uh, startups where we've sent people out just trying to, you know, cap the numbers a little bit. Every time we send them out, another group is there. We just keep growing. It's beyond anything we have ever thought about. I mean, some of you may think, boy, those guys are pretty sharp up there leaving. We don't know anything. Bill and Bill and I look at each other from time to time, and we recall the days when we described ourselves as three good old boys in the back of the pickup, and, uh, and we'd like to think ourselves better than that now. <laughs> the reality is, is that we're still just three good old boys in the back of the pickup <laughs> riding this missile. <laughs> And we ain't smart, but we do see God working here. And we see inside out Christians here. And we see ministry that we never thought or believed would ever be here, here. We see you taking time off to go down to the inner city and serve. We see some of you traveling overseas. We see us with ministry places in Poland and Haiti and South America that we never imagined or dreamed about even just a few years ago. We see churches planted around the area that it was hard to believe that we could even do that. We see people serving one another and doing things and taking time to give themselves to one another in ways that, you know, it just, it's hard to imagine. But who gets the credit for that? Us? Does this sound like bragging? Hey, I'm not bragging. I'm glorying in what? Well, in verse 21. See, to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly far beyond what we could ever dream up, to him, it says, be the glory in the church for all generations. For us, it's this generation. That's who I'm giving glory to. That's who I'm amazed at, that he could do that. But let me tell you, he only does it when they're inside-out Christians. If the day comes where the population is populated with outside-in Christians, it will be Ichabod. The glory will depart. There will be more wrangling about what you didn't do for me than what can I do for you. There will be more, gosh, that costs too much, rather than let's go for it. 
There will be more, you know, kind of take care of me rather than let me disciple you. And that will be the death of the church. But see, I sense in my spirit that, you know, as big as things have gotten and as exciting as things have been, we're just on the fringe. But it takes the inside-out Christian to take the next step. You know, this morning I would like to conclude this particular passage of Scripture uh, with a focus, with taking this focus into communion. And we're going to celebrate in the last few moments here of this hour communion together and some singing. But I can think of no better way to end this particular prayer, as majestic as it is, than by taking communion. Because, you know, communion focuses a lot, at least we've done this, on forgiveness and we'll sing about forgiveness in the next few moments. But you know what else I'd like you to be thinking about? I would like you to be thinking as much about the life of Christ in you as the death of Christ for you. You see, when we accepted Christ, we didn't just accept His death. <laughs> we received His life in the inner man who wants to get out in those particulars. And I like the fact that we take that cup and that bread, and what do we do with it? We drink it and we eat it. And where does it go? It goes inside. Because that's what Jesus Christ wants all along. He wants to be inside living His life to the outside. And so as you take communion this morning, you might think about that, and you might pray that God would strengthen you in your inner man, and He would strengthen your brothers and sisters in their inner man so that Christ might unpack in their life that Christ might begin to do visible things in their life and that their love for Christ and their sense of God's love for them might grow bigger and wider and taller and longer than anything they'd ever seen or could ever imagine. To Him be the glory forever and ever to all generations. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.